Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Good evening, Steve. Good evening, Bill. And what we're going to do today and over the course of many future episodes is give the idea what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each episode, we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then take you out to a natural spot and share with you everything that we've learned. You forgot to get quarantined in yeah. there. <laughs> that is true. We should say welcome to a special uh, COVID-19 edition. Yeah, we're doing this one over Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good idea. I don't know. <laughs> so Steve and I are, uh, are trying our best to practice social distancing. Yeah. But we are gathering uh, only two of us. They say don't gather in groups of 10 or more here in New York State, right? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but we did not hug when we met today. Yeah, I know. That was the only reason Lynn was comfortable with me coming out here. She said it had nothing to do with COVID-19. She just thinks we hug too much. <laughs> It's probably true. <laughs> Steve, do you have an idea of what we're going to talk about today? I mean, I do, but because we tried to record this a couple days ago and got rained out. <laughs> so folks, the other day we did try to record and it was uh, actually during a severe thunderstorm warning and it did open up and pour on us and we decided it was just too loud, too noisy, too windy. Yeah. Um, and we decided to bag it. Mm -hmm. All right. So this is attempt number two and we are here on a beautiful springtime evening it is april 1st yeah yeah i was about to say april 2nd uh as a april fool's joke but <laughs> too meta <laughs> so i think we should mention to the audience though for if you're a long time listener a serious long time listener you may remember our april fool's day episode oh i think some people didn't like that <laughs> <laughs> so back i think during our very first year of field guides for april Fool's Day, we recorded an episode where we did the regular intro and then we just did a hike for a half an hour. Yeah. And didn't really say anything else. Yeah, I think I think the most we said was, oh my God. Yeah. Would you look at that? And then like we didn't explain it at all. <laughs> Made some noise of flipping through a field guide. Saying, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, that must be it. Yeah. Oh, and that was it. Wow, I never saw one of those. Yeah. But I think we were the only one that actually enjoyed that. Joke, yeah. So. It was it was for us. Yeah. And uh, we we deleted it off our page. <laughs> Pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, today our episode is going to be on an animal. What's a synanthrope? Oh, well, now I know. I didn't know before. <laughs> so Bill has called me a misanthrope before. Yeah. So thrope has something to do with people and sin is like with or similar. I don't know. I have no idea what it is, but it's just things that like people, I guess, right? Well, anthrope deals with people because, right. you know, Sin like anthropocentrism is yeah. human centered. So when you're a, a misanthrope. Misanthrope. There, there go. we go. I, yeah. I, that should have been so much more obvious than I made the connection. <laughs> but synanthrope is wildlife that does well, it benefits from being around people. So think about cockroaches, silverfish, mm. lice, even mammals like possums, raccoons, mm -hmm. uh, and probably the most successful synanthrope you could consider the brown rat. It's the most widely spread mm -hmm. synanthrope. And the species we're gonna focus on today, the coyote, scientific name, don't know it. Seriously? No, I don't know it. Canis? I, no. Latrans? I don't know anything. Oh, wow. All right. You're talking to a guy that I know so little, uh, but when it comes to mammals, I know even less than little. <laughs> Especially the ladies, right? <laughs> All right. So Canis Latrans, coyote. That's going to be our, our topic today. 
Now, before we really get into it, though, we should tell people where we are, and we are actually standing right next to a, a beautiful stream. Yeah. But do we want to move so... I, I was about to say, yeah. it's it's so nice for us, but I think <laughs> at a certain point, it's really going to annoy the listeners. So. All right, so as we walk away from the creek here, we will talk about where we are. Yeah, cool. And also, maybe we should we should have given a trigger warning before saying that we're talking about the coyote. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. <laughs> because so many people are passionate about what they think they know, or potentially what they really do know about the coyote. So. Yeah, so I've been researching this for about a month. If any, any of you out there follow our social media feeds, you'll see that I posted a couple of things on Facebook back in the beginning of March about coyotes, letting you know that, hey, we're going to be doing an episode on this. And we got a, a few weird responses there. And then just talking to people, friends, people I run into, whatever. Yeah. It is crazy the amount of emotion that is generated by talking about coyotes. And it's, you know, if any of you out there know anything about wolves and reintroduction of wolves, that generates a lot of heated debate, especially in areas out west. Uh, not mm -hmm. so much here where it's not really possible. Well, I know this. Well, oh man, I quote unquote know this. Wolves are apex predators and coyotes are usually meso predators. Yeah, and I almost think coyotes, maybe it's because of where we are here in the east where wolf reintroduction, unless you're somewhere like in the Adirondacks or I don't know, maybe up in Maine where it's technically possible. Coyotes just around here, boy. I was at a party a couple weeks ago and two guys who I know are, are hunters. Yeah. I brought up what we were doing and whoo, you could tell they felt incredibly strongly about it. I mean, we had a good conversation, but. Yeah, so. uh, you were in the Southern tier of New York, uh, close to there. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I was just in one of the, the suburbs of Buffalo. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right, but where we are, we are at a place called Franklin Gulf County Park. Mm -hmm. And we've been here for a couple episodes. This is a, a 600 acre mixed woods park that is really not maintained by the county. So it's one of the, the wilder parks, you could say, in the county. But you were mentioning when we attempted to record last time that you had something special to say about this place. Uh, yeah, but I was being purposefully vague, uh, vague about <laughs> what I was talking about. But I, I was just saying that it's a place that not a lot of people know about. Yeah. And just on the sides of a lot of the paths here, there are some gems that are otherwise very difficult to come across so I'm not gonna say more than that but it's a really nice place and if you're respectful of nature and you like to look but not touch I recommend coming here during the time that they are in bloom look but not collect right? yeah right 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 <laughs> no poaching yeah so we are about like most of the places we visit we're about uh, half an hour southeast of Buffalo mm -hmm. and we are in second growth forest here. We have maples, we have hemlock. Beaches, beaches. still with their leaves from last year. <laughs> That's right. But it is, as I said before, it is a, a beautiful spring evening. Uh, spring ephemerals have started to come up over the past couple of weeks. We've seen spring beauty, colt's foot, uh, trout lily. I haven't seen any blossoms yet. I've seen leaves though. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm hoping on our walk tonight, we're gonna hopefully see maybe at least the leaves of a few things. I think a lot of the, the blossoms will be closed up right now, but. Oh yeah. yeah. But one thing I do got to say, every time I've been here before, I was the only person in the parking lot or the people I was hiking with. <laughs> and with all of this quarantine stuff going on and people staying home, people are still, they're spending a lot of time at parks. Yeah. When Violet and I, we go hiking most days, you know, I'm, I'm teaching her at home. I'm teaching from home. And I was cannot that Blueberry? Believe, 
Oh. Vexinium? Get down and look. Sure looks like it. Yeah, that's just the littlest little <laughs> twig of Vexinium. <laughs> <laughs> but that is one silver lining about all of this is so many people are getting outside. It's great to see the parking lot was full here tonight. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we hope all of you folks out there are safe and sound and hold your loved ones close. And thank you for listening tonight. And we will do our best. But this is going to be kind of a strange episode. If you're a regular listener, you know we've been uh, a little off on our normal schedule of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> releasing episodes. And it's so, weird. It's almost like I haven't done an episode personally in a long time. <laughs> been like it's a year <laughs> it's really weird yeah <laughs> all right so it's weird it almost like lines up perfectly with me being back in school <laughs> maybe there's a correlation a cor- <laughs> the correlation doesn't mean causation bill all right i think it's just the laziness <laughs> <laughs> that's what i think <laughs> but anyway the the topic of coyotes i initially wanted to look into that topic because i had read an article about a debate whether the coyotes here in the east are a different species from the coyotes out west. Okay. But looking into the coyote, I mean, I, I've done a little bit of research on the past, on nature walks, I've talked about them, you know, done some some cursory research, but every article I've read uh, led me to another article, uh, led me to another book, and they are truly one of the most fascinating topics we've ever covered. We could do a whole slew of episodes on them. They're just so adaptable, and that's what makes it tough to cover them in just one episode because most animals you can say they do this or they do that or you find them here and they behave in this way and coyotes it's almost like any question you ask you could say yeah coyotes might do that it just <laughs> depends on where you are <laughs> uh, they might eat that or you know yeah uh, you might find them there they might live here so this particular episode we're going to cover basic coyote natural history mm-hmm. and then i'm going to cover two or three questions things that i've taught that i've wondered is that actually true because you know a lot of past episodes things i've held as natural history truths i've a lot of them i've realized oh those aren't true at all (laughs) right right. yeah so we're gonna delve into those and then the next episode we record is going to be part two we're going to delve into that debate of are the coyotes here in the east a different species than the coyotes out west yeah so i have a quick question before we get started you had brought up the scientific name for the coyote and that is again canis latrans now that's not interesting at all (laughs) it Uh, just means barking dog that's what i wanted to ask (laughs) okay cool so latrans has something to do with barking with barking okay got it and i think canis has something Something to do (laughs) (laughs) probably (laughs) canis lupus yeah Yeah. all right so why don't we stop what does lupus mean uh, lupine Uh, Something to do with the moon? I don't know. I don't know. I can't. I feel like I should know lupine. I'm writing it down. And Canis lupus, we're just saying that's the wolf. Also the uh, the domestic dog, too. Well. Well, (laughs) same species, though, right? I would say most references I came across classify the domestic dog as Canis lupus. Lupus domesticus? Domesticus. Yeah. But you will see it as Canis domesticus. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah. good to know. Not as often. Okay. So we've gotten into this discussion before about what is a species, right? It's really not very obvious <laughs> at all. It's okay if you have your own opinion, but it's just, it's good that if you're going into a conversation that you understand that someone else could be defining it differently. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes like a population is enough for someone to consider something different. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's focus first on the Western coyote. Because before European settlement, Canis latrans was really only found in the western regions of North America, mostly in the prairies. 
which I had no idea that yeah. that was new to me. I didn't know that before researching mm -hmm. this episode. You probably have a picture of a coyote in your head. It looks like a small to medium-sized dog, right? Now, they usually have a, a long, bushy tail, black-tipped. They have those pointed ears and that long, pointed face. Their fur can vary in color. It's usually from light brown to like a grayish color. And the fur on the underside is usually white. And as we already mentioned, they're a member of the genus Canis, which is in the family Canidae. Now, in Canis, I was surprised. There's only seven species. Oh, wow, okay. So that's wolves, dogs, coyotes, and jackals. Oh, but okay. Wait, it, wait, wait. What? Tell me that list again. Wolves, dogs, coyotes, and jackals. Got it. So you just listed four things, but six species. Seven species. Oh, seven. And two of those things we just said now are arguably the same species. Well, remember, there's different species of wolves. Right. Dogs count as, depending on who you're yeah, talking that's to, what I, yeah. let's say they're really a, a subspecies of okay. wolf. There's different kinds of jackals. Okay. Right. Now, in each of those groups, wolves, coyotes, jackals, there are many subspecies. And then different even species within those groups, like mm -hmm. I just said. The coyote, there's 19 recognized subspecies. Wow. Okay. Just of Canis latrans, depending on geography and wow. size, where you're going to find them, 19 different subspecies. Wow. So Canis may seem simple. Oh, there's only seven species, but it's not. Yeah. So what do coyotes eat? Technically, they're omnivores, but they're primarily carnivores in, in what they eat. So do you think they eat deer? Uh, you know what? I, I'm just going to say my whole life I just assumed they would, but maybe they, maybe an adult deer might be too big to take down, but. Very good. Very okay. Good. So that's going to be one of the points we cover later because uh, a lot of hunters you'll talk to, that's one reason they really don't like coyotes, at least the hunters that I've come across and what I've seen online, because they feel that they're taking too many deer and that's going to make it harder for the hunters to find the deer. I think I've mentioned before, my family has some land down in Cattaraugus County and the coyotes, I believe when I was really young, I thought someone had told me that the coyotes were extirpated from that area oh, that and probably area. for that reason, because there's a lot of people that hunt down there. Sure. That's what a lot of that land is used for. Well, if they were, I bet they're back. <laughs> that would be cool. I, I haven't <laughs> yeah. seen them myself, but. So yes, remember I said before, when you ask a question, you know, would coyotes do this? The answer is usually yeah probably depending on where you are and which yeah. population of coyotes you're looking at so they do eat deer uh, rabbits hares rodents birds you know, burger king almost anything <laughs> coyotes will eat that's one reason they're so successful they'll even eat fish and vertebrates fruits vegetables on occasion hmm. and in a lot of areas their diets vary with the seasons hmm. so they are extremely adaptable we're going to say that a lot what do you think the predators of coyotes might be Oh, I bet a wolf could take a coyote. So bears, wolves, and mountain lions. Oh, a bear. Yeah. Imagine a bear taking out a coyote. <laughs> I, I kind of want to see the video yeah. of that. There's probably one out there. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be a nature documentary out there. So that would be predominantly out west. But if you were a coyote, really your, your main thing you got to worry about is people. Golden so. eagles. <laughs> I don't know if that's ever happened. <laughs> and when we talk about people, we're not just talking about hunters. We are talking about cars, too. So yeah. since so many coyotes, as I'm sure many of our listeners know now, are living in urban areas, it's just natural that a lot of them are going to get killed by cars. All right, I've so seen a coyote. Oh, yeah. At UB. I don't, I'm not surprised. Uh, so there's a, there's a little patch of forest next to UB near the Ellicott residence halls. And there's this little forest there called Bletchworth Woods, right. not to be confused with Bletchworth State Park. <laughs> right. And my friends and I built a- We recorded our vegan episode in Bletchworth Woods. 
Seriously? Oh, yeah, you're right. We yeah. did do that. Yeah. Well, I, we, uh, th- my friends and I, we wanted to build a tree fort in Letchworth Woods, but we didn't want to use like a hammer and nails. So we bought a ton of twine and we watched a bunch of videos to learn how to like properly make a twine. Did this work? Oh yeah. Really? So we built scaffold. There's these three trees that were like really nicely uh, positioned all like in a triangle near Whoa. each other. And we built scaffolding about 20 feet and then a platform uh, across. And my friends and I would just go up there and just sit on the platform, hang out. And one time I was and just up there. dirty hippies together. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. <laughs> and there was one point where I was like, oh my God, a wolf, guys, a wolf. And my friend Jason, obviously, I'm a bit of a liar. You can't really believe a lot of the things I say. But uh, he immediately was like, no, there's no way. And then luckily, my friend Jeff was also with us. And he was just like, no, there is one. There is one. And uh, I couldn't tell you the difference between a coyote and a wolf, especially back then. And yeah, so we had two eyes on it anyway. Pretty sure in retrospect, it was a coyote. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. All right. So let's focus on the coyotes moving east. As I mentioned, prior to European settlement of North America, and even prior to 1900, the coyotes were really only found in the prairie regions. Now, at that time, though, their range, it did overlap with gray wolves. There really wasn't much hybridization happening. So can coyotes and wolves hybridize? Yes, but they prefer not to. Hmm. And usually hybridization will only happen, and we'll get into this in the next episode, when you're at the edge of a territory and either the wolves or their coyote are having a hard time finding mates in their own species Hmm. then it may happen that hybridization will happen right but typically wolves aren't looking for coyotes to mate with they're typically looking coyotes to kill right (laughs) Right. i assume that's kind of the general rule though yeah within species usually they usually mate within your own species right yeah now as the wolves were wiped out east of the mississippi that's when the western coyotes they started to expand eastward mm-hmm. and when that happened they started to hybridize with remnant eastern wolves so eastern wolves depending on who you talk to that's <laughs> canis lupus lycaon or just canis lycaon we've talked about how there's some debate and we're going to cover that about whether eastern coyotes are a separate species there's similar debate going on about wolves and are the gray wolves out west, are they a separate species from the wolves around the Great Lakes and in places like Algonquin? There's many references in the literature that I looked at that the wolves living around Algonquin Park mm-hmm. in southern Ontario, where we recorded our uh, spruce, spruce grouse. Yeah, spruce yeah. grouse episode, that those are a separate species, Canis lycaon. And those wolves are smaller than the wolves out west. So when these coyotes started to move east, they hybridized with these remnant eastern wolves. And that's what created what we'll call for now the eastern coyote. There are differences in the eastern coyote and the coyotes you're going to find out west. We'll get into those differences in a minute. Mm -hmm. But just understand that now the coyote you find here in the east, they're at home from landscapes all the way from Florida to Labrador. Hmm. Pretty much all of the eastern states and The coyote has even spread to all of the Canadian provinces. So they didn't just spread east into our deciduous forests. They also went north into the taiga forests, west into those coastal temperate rainforests, and even south into the tropical rainforest. So the coyote just is incredibly cosmopolitan because it's so adaptable. Yeah. So how are these guys here in the east different from the western ones? Well, they're bigger. They're beefier. So if you see a coyote here in the east, they can weigh up to 50 pounds. Uh, how are they getting those gains? <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you think? 
is it is there more food because the west is a wasteland of uh, <laughs> no think about who they hybridized with oh right okay Okay. So they hybridize with wolves. Wolves are bigger. Right. Yeah. So it's just natural their offspring is going to be larger. Got it. So that 50 pounds I gave you, that's that's really the top for eastern coyote. Average, it's going to be 30 to 40 pounds. The western coyote is typically 20 to 30 pounds. Mm. The eastern... And they live in a wasteland <laughs> called the western United States. <laughs> Sorry, folks that live out west. I love the west. I, uh... I love the west. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if wasteland's an accurate <laughs> ecological term, but... It's, I think it is a specific term, but it's not the way I'm using it. The, the wasteland bio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, so eastern coyotes, they also have more color on average, and they often have odd colorations that include red, black, pale fur, or a combination of all of these colors. They often look like German shepherds, but are about half the weight. They still have those large, erect, pointed ears, that pointed face, but just in terms of length from nose to tail, an eastern coyote can be four to five feet long. A western coyote, just two and a half to three feet. Oh. Which isn't much bigger than a red fox. I say it's not much bigger than some cats. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> a, a red fox is only a little bit bigger than a cat. Right. right. So, and you could have. I'm trying to use something people see more often, Bill. <laughs> you, you could have a large red fox yeah. that could be bigger than a small western coyote. Wow. All right. So the eastern coyote also has a bigger, broader skull with larger teeth. They have bigger paws and they have longer legs. Hmm. So when you're talking about taking down deer, it'd be very rare for a Western coyote to be able to predate on a white-tailed deer or a mule deer out there. Mm -hmm. Here in the East, they're bigger. Their skulls, as, as I said, are broader. So we figure they have more pounds per square inch of bite force. Okay. So yeah. it's not out of the question. These so the, larger... The, the Western coyotes are kind of like the Ben Shapiro of coyotes. So. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I don't know how our listeners will feel about that. <laughs> Everyone unsubscribes. <laughs> so these larger ones out here out, out east, they've been referred to over their 100-year history as a koi dog, as a tweed wolf, as a brush wolf, as a new wolf, as the northeastern coyote. And now one term that's being put out there as a possible new common name is the koi wolf. Mm. So I'm sure people have heard of that. There is some dog mixed in as well they did hybridize okay. with dogs during their their spread here east huh. so there was a name that was presented somewhat in jest in one of the uh articles i read but i liked it it was the dolphody oh no <laughs> <laughs> i like that one the dolphody I, I think way too much dolphin <laughs> and yeah, people don't I people so. describe dolphins as like the wolves of the sea are, I mean, did i hear that somewhere the wolves of the sea the no i think you imagine that yeah you know what i played a lot of fantasy games growing up <laughs> so for all i know that's where i'm pulling that from that's probably from some strange anime movie that... <laughs> yeah i would be one to watch that so, right. so yeah. these guys they do have a larger home range than most western coyotes but it is smaller than wolves and as far as what their average home range is I saw in all of the books and all of the articles I read, the range of numbers that I saw went from anywhere about five square miles all the way to 50 square miles. Huh. So again, they're just so adaptable. Yeah, right. You gotta imagine those urban coyotes have a mm -hmm. pretty small home range. And those suckers going 50 miles when there's other ones just going five. <laughs> now, if you see an animal- Work smarter, not harder. <laughs> and they are smart. Now that animal you saw from your uh, your hippie tree fort. Yeah. Now you could have- We could barely see through the smoke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, if you could have seen yeah. through the smoke, uh -huh. one thing you could have looked for to tell, is it a coyote, is it a dog, mm. is how it's holding its tail. 
Mm. Now, of course, this, this isn't going to work all the time, but dogs, when they're wandering around, typically hold their tails up Upwards. erect, yeah. whereas coyotes are typically going to hold them downward. Mm. You could have also tried to howl. I could have. Yip and bark. Yeah. And depending on the time of year, what's going on with that coyote, it's possible that it could have responded. Interesting. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to give specific measurements here, but just know that Western Coyote Track is going to be slightly larger or sometimes the same size as a Red Fox Track. Mm -hmm. And an Eastern Coyote Track is going to be slightly larger. It's about a, a half an inch or so bigger all around. But okay. folks, it can be hard to tell the difference between a Coyote Track and a Dog Track. I know a lot of people say, oh, you look at how they move. And that is true. Uh, you look at the track line, not just the individual tracks. Dogs will typically wander about, whereas coyotes are more direct. They'll typically yeah. go from shelter spot to sheltered spot. Mm -hmm. uh, especially in open areas, they're going to move much more directly than yeah. a dog will. But Dogs are idiots. They're always wandering <laughs> around like they don't know what they're doing. They're sniffing around blindly. Typically safe and happy. <laughs> <laughs> they trust us too much. Yeah, exactly. And it'll be to, the, to their demise, actually. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Look at Chihuahua. When this whole COVID thing is over, they're going to be still kicking. <laughs> well, cats will probably still be kicking. Yeah. I don't know about dogs. But, um, shoot, you let me leave Oh, yeah, trainer. dogs really depend on us. That's a they really do. good point. <laughs> the coyotes will be fine, though. <laughs> They'll be totally fine. Yeah. Now, do you think coyotes live in packs you know what i thought they did and i'm just going to give the most i'm not going to overthink these answers i'm just going to say i yeah. think they did also i th i think tom kerr told me a story once where he's he a naturalist with buffalo Audubon. yes uh <laughs> really smart dude yeah uh, we tried to get him on the podcast but he's a coward <laughs> 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 or he doesn't like us but uh no he, he was i think he was telling me a story and tom's gonna have to correct me if i get this wrong but I think he said he was walking through the woods at, at Buffalo Audubon, at the Beaver Meadows uh, Audubon Center. And I think he said that at one point he felt like he was surrounded by coyotes and he, he could like hear them. I don't know if he was seeing them necessarily because it was really dark out when it happened, I guess. Okay. But he said he had nothing. I think he was saying he had nothing to be worried about, but I would be worried. <laughs> well, you shouldn't have to worry. I, I mean, I'm just I'm just a worry ward, so I wouldn't want anything around me. I remember I'm the Bobcat episode. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't want any part of that. That's a shout out to our Screech Owl episode. Yeah. Uh, when we ran into, a, I'm doing air quotes here, Bobcat. So go back and listen to that one if you haven't. Yeah. It's one of my favorite episodes. All right, so the question that I asked, initial question I asked was, do coyotes form packs? Oh, and I said... I just assume they do because of an anecdote I heard and also my whole life growing up, people said they hunt in packs. Well, I already told you, oh. if someone asks a question, do coyotes do this, what do you say? Oh, I would be, I would look it up. I wouldn't yeah, say anything until say, I looked it up. You say, sometimes. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Okay. <laughs> so what I should say is it's an area of debate and it really depends on which source you're looking at. So it's not really a debate though, but you would be wrong to say yes. All coyotes form packs, or no, they don't really form packs. It's semantics, because what is a right. pack, all right? So sure. one article that I read said they do not form packs, but they do form family groups, but not true packs. And they went on to say, because a true pack usually has multiple generations of adults living together. Think of a wolf pack. Mm. But then they went on to say that coyote groups usually consist of a mated pair and their pups, and sometimes they have the yearlings that were born last year. Still isn't, family? Isn't that a family group with multiple generations living together? Oh, I mean, it is. <laughs> the parents, this year's kids, and last year's kids? Yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's fluid. Coyotes actually have something called 
fission fusion adaptation. Have you heard about this? I mean, I've heard of fission and fusion right, but with and regards, adaptation. With regard to wildlife, though. No, I had no, never heard I, of this. I heard it in regards to physics. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And I do have to give credit where credit is due here. So when I first started researching this back in early March, mm -hmm. March 2020, someone on Facebook said, oh, stuff you should know. They just did an episode on coyotes. And I'm like, no. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I mean, stuff you should know. That's all right. They're not, they're not biologists. They aren't, but, you know. I, I guess you're not a biologist I hold, <laughs> I hold them in high esteem. And yeah, you're the next best thing, though. So <laughs> arguably better than some biologists who don't know anything about nature. So Well, and I debated about listening to it because, you know, I think they have a great delivery. They deliver almost any topic in, in their wonderful, humorous style. Yeah. But... I decided, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and listen to it. And they did a, a very good workman's job of, of going over the basics of coyote biology. And, and I feel that we're not going to overlap in a lot of areas. But mm -hmm. they did cover this, Vision Fusion, and I had not yet come across it in hmm. my research. So thank you to them for doing that. So you can find Vision Fusion adaptations in animals like chimpanzees hmm. and elephants. So this is when you have animals living in some sort of society but the size and the composition of the social group, mm -hmm. it changes with the passage of time and where they are in the environment. Okay. So take some kinds of primates, they'll sleep in one place together, like in a group, but then they'll split sometimes when they're looking for food uh, because it's just more advantageous in terms of being able to find food. It works better if you're, you're off on your own, depending okay. on the habitat that you're in and the, the food that you're looking for. So are you saying that their fusion is at night when they're sleeping and their fissions when they're going out during the day? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Very good, Stephen. <laughs> well, I just happen to know what the words mean. Nothing that special. <laughs> so, coyotes Okay, guys, it's fuse time for fusing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> coyotes fuse. Um, and fission. <laughs> I would love, I, I love picturing that. <laughs> so, again, they're, they're adaptable. They do what they need to do. If food is scarce, you're not going to have a large group of coyotes living together. What it seems from what I've been reading and, and what, you know, if you can take what I've seen in groups of coyotes, typically it seems that you have a mated pair and they do mate for life. Mm. And then you have this year's pups with them. Mm. That is like the typical coyote group if you have a group. Okay. So do they form packs? It depends on what you define a pack as, but I would say yes, I think they do form packs not as large and necessarily complex as wolf packs. Okay. They're typically simpler because sometimes you might have an unrelated wolf moving in to a wolf pack, right? Okay. But in a, a group of coyotes, it is that mated pair. You could say that alpha male and that alpha female that are doing the reproducing. Mm. Okay. Okay. So this will be a question people are going to ask. Yeah. Did you look into the reliability of alpha beta any of that stuff <laughs> so i debated about bringing that up because mm -hmm. within the past five ten years a lot of well-known wolf researchers have mm -hmm. said that's not a thing it was it was one of the recent wolf documentaries that came out mm -hmm. Th that was after after that came out that was the first time i heard that you'll see these types of relationships but it's not usually in the most natural of settings right and it's not as simple as we might want it that right as that alpha relationship makes it seem yeah so. like for example i'm an alpha but i don't you're, know but you're in your own pack so <laughs> yeah but i'm all alone what's up with that no one wants me <laughs> you're the alpha of your own pack yeah, yeah. one man alpha wolf pack <laughs> one man wolf pack 
All right, so that's a topic for another time, though, whether okay. alpha is actually a thing or not. Yeah. I'm going to use Presented it. by two betas. <laughs> there you go. We're going to proceed as if it's a thing. Okay. Right? So this family unit, they'll usually defend their territory against other coyotes, and it's this, this territorial behavior that limits the numbers in one area. Mm. So if coyotes are already established in an area, that's really going to keep a limit on that population. Okay. okay. I also did come across one thing, and then they mentioned it in the Stuff You Should Know podcast. I thought about not mentioning it, but there's sometimes hangers-on in a pack, and these are older offspring, beyond oh, yearlings. Like they're in their 30s, still yeah, living yeah, in their mother's exactly. basement. Exactly. <laughs> okay, yeah. And uh, the Stuff You Should Know guys, they didn't really talk about why. They just liked that term hangers-on and, and that yeah. idea of these guys just hanging out, and they often have very little interaction with the other members of the group. Yeah. But a couple papers I read, they hypothesized that the advantage of these guys hanging on is they're basically waiting for the parents to die and then they can take over the territory. Oh, <laughs> that's kind of like inheriting the parents' house. Exactly. <laughs> okay. I'm not leaving because yeah. you'll be dead soon. <laughs> and, and, and for any of our listeners out there that are 30 years old and living with their parents, we completely understand yes. that the, the age of moving out has moved further and further back and yes. it's uh no judgment it's the economy it's <laughs> not it's not you <laughs> all right so we mentioned a i little still bit. live at my parents <laughs> no 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 not anymore no not not for a while it's been at least like six weeks right <laughs> yeah, yeah right <laughs> all right so we already said canis latrans means barking dog so we're going to talk about vocalizations here okay so they can bark like dogs but they also produce high-pitched yips and howls. Mm. In a mated pair of coyotes, they can produce a group yip howl, and the male howls and the female adds in all these other sounds. And this ties into your story about Tom and hearing the coyotes, because after hearing a, a family group howling, it's very easy to think that the woods are overflowing with coyotes. Is it's, it? <laughs> yes, well, because I mean, this is actually a thing. Okay, so... It, Based on my story, it does make it sound like wolves are these, or, or, sorry, uh, coyotes are these like cryptic things that we don't see very much, but they're all over the place, you know? Like the fact that he could feel like he was surrounded. Uh, right, right. Yeah. But remember, you have coyotes defending a territory. So yeah. he, there's probably one family group that has claimed Beaver Meadow as their territory. Right. So they make a tremendous amount of noise where they want to, but they don't howl with a single pure tone. Wolves and coyotes do this. They howl together using wavering or modulating sounds. Mm. And what this does, these rapid changes in pitch, it makes it difficult to follow one howl. And if they do this simultaneously, it makes it even harder. And remember, as the sound travels, it's gonna be bouncing off trees and ridges and cliffs and the landscape, and that's gonna reflect and scatter the sound. So as a result, different packs of coyotes and humans, we have a hard time judging how many coyotes are making a given group howl. It's wow. very difficult. Two can sound like four or more. So there's even a record of this. I came across a record from the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant. In his journal, he reported hearing a pack of more than 20 wolves while traveling, but then a short time later, they reached the wolves. Mm -hmm. There were two. Wow. I don't know how good Ulysses S. Grant was at <laughs> determining stuff. Yeah. This, this phenomenon actually has a name. It's called the bow jest effect. And I may be saying that wrong because it is French. Beau jest. Beau jest. Do you want to give it a shot right now? Uh, a wolf or a coyote howl? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we could try. So, <laughs> It'll be the most embarrassing thing we've ever done. Hang on, let me finish this, <laughs> okay. okay? 
and then we can do that. So this effect, it could be potentially lethal for competing coyote packs because if mm -hmm. they underestimate the size of arrival and approach, they're in trouble, right? Right. So this effect, it's named after a novel. And in this novel, there were some French troops and they propped up their dead to make the group attacking them believe that they were a larger force than they really are. Hmm. So obviously they're not doing this on purpose. It's just, this is how they've evolved this, this behavior. Right. But it makes people or other predators unsure of how many coyotes are actually over there. Right. All right, so you wanna try a coyote howl? Oh God, okay. Right. So we're gonna try this. I'm gonna do the howl. Okay. And then you're gonna yip. You're gonna go yip, 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 yip. Oh really, that's what, okay, I, okay. All right, you ready? Oh God. And we okay. can cut this out if it's really bad. No, 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 the, the cringier the better. Okay, ready? Yeah. Yip, 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 yip. <laughs> Was my yipping good? <laughs> now, those people out Bill's listening. Bill's shaking his head. <laughs> what? Those people How listening you? to us are probably cringing. But <laughs> I was going to suggest we do that because back when I used to work at Beaver Meadow, yeah. we used to have full moon hikes. Mm -hmm. And in the summertime, when the coyote pups have left the den, they have a strong urge to howl. And when we did full moon hikes in June, July, even into August, I would usually end the hike by having people howl. And we get, you know, a big group of people together. I'd have some barking, some yipping, some howling. Yeah. And not often, but once in a while, coyotes would howl back. Wow. All right. So it's not out of the question. And a lot of times the groups didn't even sound as good as you and I just did. <laughs> so. Wow. They called our bluff. They're surrounding us, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> we'll catch it all on, on audio. All right, guys, we're about to get eaten alive. It'll be like Grizzly Man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, do you want to walk a little bit? Sure, yeah. Okay. So while we're walking, I think this is a good time for Steve. I had asked you before we uh, recorded if you could be prepared to say something about this episode's sponsor. All right, so this episode is sponsored by Gumleaf USA. If you've been a longtime listener, you'll know that this company makes high-quality, super comfortable, handmade tall rubber boots. I'm actually wearing out a pair right now called the Field Welly and Bill has a pair on called the Royal Zip. That's right. They're handcrafted for comfort and function. They're 100% waterproof, durable, and made with 85% natural rubber, so you won't have to worry about them cracking. And they have styles for men and women, and they're great for birding, botanizing, or any outdoor activity, like recording a podcast <laughs> on a trail with your friend while you're trying to maintain social distancing. That's right. <laughs> or like last time we tried and failed to record the podcast, it was a wet mess that day. I was wearing these boots and they kept my feet dressed. Yeah. So, uh, and they're you... good at keeping ticks off. Oh yeah, <laughs> our anecdote about ticks. <laughs> So if you're interested in high-quality, tall rubber boots, we recommend visiting gumleafusa.com and explore their products. It's also a great way to support us and help us do cooler things with the podcast. So there will be a link in the episode notes and on our website. And there's also a offer code in the notes for free shipping if you're a patron of the podcast. Yes, so please take advantage of that, guys. All right, so those are the basics of the coyote. And what we're going to do now is we're going to cover some of the the questions that I wanted to find the answers to. Okay. Now, I'm gonna ask you three questions and you're gonna give me true or false. Okay, so okay. quick. You've learned your lesson about asking me questions. <laughs> That's why I've said, you gotta say just true or false. Okay. All right, so hang on, let's stop for a second. True or false, you can control coyote populations by hunting. False. Okay. We should be hunting coyotes because they're killing too many deer. False. 
We should be hunting coyotes because they kill a large number of livestock. False. Okay. So we're going to break those down one at a time. Now, have you ever heard that the argument that you shouldn't be trying to control coyote populations by hunting them? Because what that does is it just means they're going to have larger litters. Right. I guess I don't completely understand that other than maybe with open territories, they can take advantage of that more and yeah so we're gonna take it food. apart we're yeah. gonna take it apart the number that gets thrown around a lot is that you would have to kill 75 percent of the coyote population every year just to keep their population level huh. steady so that number gets thrown around a lot i had used that before teaching people about coyotes so i wanted to find out is this true so that means they must have done some type of estimate of how much before we like eliminated their predators how much the predators were taking on a yearly basis what percentage so and this goes back to a study from 1975 but that study it was a simulation model mm. right? so it wasn't real right okay so it wasn't actually done out in the field it also did not take into account different age groups within the coyote population because mm -hmm. usually when a coyote is born the next year it won't have pups yet okay okay if the population is low and there's that drive to have a litter, those younger coyotes will mate, but very often they won't be able to carry that litter to term. There's some studies I looked at where they would take these coyotes, they would trap them, and then they would do a necropsy on them and they would look at the uterus and they'd look for scarring and um, they'd be able to tell okay. if the coyote had a litter, if it was reabsorbed, what happened. Right. But that 75% number, sometimes you'll see it as 70%. The only reference I could find, and I looked at a lot of studies, I'm not saying it was comprehensive, but sure. um, I could only see references to this one study from 1975. But because of that study, coyotes in many circles, especially pro-coyote circles, they're referred to as the hydra, that, you know, that <laughs> mythical beast where you cut off a head and you know, 10 more heads pop out. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, there was a time in our, in our history when the government and, and many citizens made a concerted specific effort to wipe out the coyote as a species. Hmm. The wolves had pretty much been wiped out uh, right. for the most part. So they turned their sights on the coyote. They said, well, there's another predator. Let's go after that one. <laughs> yeah. um, and still every year, hundreds of thousands of coyotes are killed very often by aerial shooting, by poisoning, snares, many different methods, lots of different numbers I saw out there, but pretty consistently in the hundreds of thousands. Was Sarah Palin, friend of the show, <laughs> um, was she shooting coyotes or wolves from her helicopter? Or, I don't know. No? But I do you know what I'm talking about? I do. Okay. I remember hearing about I th that. I think but... it was wolves, but you know. Yeah. All right. So the man, man... We're, we're, I'm name dropping too much <laughs> in this episode. Ben Shapiro for being short, Sarah, Sarah Palin for shooting coyotes, wolves. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I had a story <laughs> about Sarah Palin, but totally I'm not going to go into it. Totally off track, yeah. So, <laughs> so the mass killing of, of these coyotes, it does lead to increases in their population, but a lot of the idea behind it is that it throws their social structure into chaos. So the idea is left to their own devices, populations are going to self-regulate based on food availability in those territories defended by resident groups that we talked about before, right? Mm -hmm. So under those normal conditions, only the dominant alpha, quote unquote, pair, they're gonna mate in that area. But when there's indiscriminate killing, 
you're going to have social bonds breaking and there's going to be a power vacuum where you're going to have lots of coyotes pairing up trying to establish packs. How often that actually plays out, that storyline, is debatable. So obviously it is possible, right? But the pro-coyote line, and I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong, I'm just not, I'm saying it's not right in all cases, mm -hmm. is that the less coyotes you kill, the less you'll have. Because they're saying if you leave them to their own devices, they're going to self-regulate. Okay. That's not always the case. So we're going to look at some studies now. Okay. So in 2005, this was uh, a study from the proceedings of the 11th Wildlife Damage Management Conference. <laughs> Never so heard of it. <laughs> you, can, you can imagine coyotes are probably not very popular there, right? <laughs> no. This study looked at aerial gunning and trapping. Hmm. And what they found is that this gunning and trapping that took place over two years, it did not change the home range of the coyotes in that area. Yeah. That's why you got to do it for three years. <laughs> Well, maybe, right? <laughs> they did say it shifted the age structure to a younger age. Mm -hmm. So there were going to be more yearlings. Yeah. They did say litter size did significantly increase in the removal area, but they looked at why. They accounted for both changes in prey abundance and coyote density. And what they found is it was way more related to prey abundance. Hmm. Okay. okay. But that would so make this sense. Could've, this could have just been the typical fluctuation of populations. Well, if you think about it, if they're removing a whole bunch of coyotes from an area, yeah. there's going to be more prey available. Right. So you're going to have larger litters. Right, 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 right. right. All right. So there was a, another study. More this, prey available, we should say more prey available per coyote. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And they actually made that uh, relation in the study. Yeah. So this is going a little farther back. This is from 1994, but I'm using this study because it was typical of a lot of the studies that I looked at. This is one that looked at um, coyotes were removed from a couple different study sites. They had study sites where coyotes were removed and then they had study sites where coyotes were present and they were not removed. Mm -hmm. And they used scent stations to calculate relative abundance of coyotes. Do you know what scent stations are? I didn't, I had to look this up. I, I can't make a guess without saying something dumb. So, <laughs> how's that different from you? <laughs> That's pretty normal, yeah. But So what a scent station is. <laughs> so what my gut tells me a scent station. Yeah, there's about three coyotes around <laughs> here. I could tell. You just made a scent station. <laughs> All right, so apparently this is pretty common in measuring predators in an area, hmm. but what they do is choose different spots, sometimes along a transect in, in a given habitat, and they'll set up some kind of medium on the ground, usually in a circle, mm -hmm. and then they'll put some kind of scent attractant in the middle of that circle. Mm. The mm -hmm. medium surrounding it is gonna be sand, you know, flower, something that's gonna okay. pick up tracks. Okay, so it can be easily disturbed and you can tell. Exactly, yep. so then over a regular interval, you're gonna visit that scent station, mm -hmm. look at the tracks, and you'll be able to have some kind of reference point for who's in the area and how many. So what they did in this study in these areas, there were some experimental areas where I mentioned they removed coyotes, and they did it seasonally. So from 1990 to 1991, spring, summer, fall, winter, every season, they would go out in usually helicopters and, and shoot coyotes. Initially, there was an 80% reduction in coyotes hmm. in the experimental areas. Mm -hmm. And the crazy part is the next season, so just three months later, for most of their data points, it was a pretty big jump back. Sometimes there hmm. wouldn't be a huge jump, but other times it would be quite big. So, for example, their first 
pre-shooting data point was 158. So they gave this a numerical score for relative abundance. Mm -hmm. After shooting, the relative abundance in coyotes was seven. Mm. Okay. okay, that's huge. I mean, drop. obviously it's a relative, so we're not saying there's seven individuals. Right, there's not we're, individuals. Yeah. So there was a 95% drop there. Right. The following season, the relative abundance had rebounded to 34. So not that big. But then in future data sets, mm -hmm. it would jump back. Like even if it went down to 10, yeah. the following season, it might jump back to 100. Wow, okay. So big jumps back up. Yeah. And the reason I put the study in here, I mentioned, this was similar to a lot of the other studies I saw was after they practiced removal through shooting, trapping, whatever, mm -hmm. I, could, I had a hard time finding studies that would go back and look six months later, a year later, oh, to see yeah. how did the, the populations respond. A lot of these studies were basically like, well, when we were shooting and removing them, we were able to keep the population down. Hmm, right. So it's almost like, well, sure you can, but it doesn't last very long and you got to continually do it. Right. It's like you're constantly stick, you're sticking your finger in to stop a leak and another leak pops somewhere else. Right. Because... Albeit, it does seem like it's a smaller leak, you know, if you're taking like 95%. Right, but they weren't taking 95% every time. Got it. Right. So that must have been a big effort. So they also didn't look at prey numbers in mm -hmm. this study. So you don't know how prey numbers were affecting the populations oh, as well. Yeah. So from all the studies I looked at, you know, can you control coyote populations? I would say it's extremely difficult. It yeah. requires almost constant vigilance because mm -hmm. that study I just mentioned, those, these were just three month windows and they would be pretty big bounces back often. Sometimes yeah. not, but it's possible. So well, one thing I do want to say about mammals, I guess in general, and I, it's not true just for mammals, but Mammals are like super cryptic. Like we see squirrels and chipmunks and stuff all the time. Yeah. But we know there's wolves out here. We know there's bears out here. We not, know there's there's not and, wolves here in. Oh, Western sorry, Europe. not wolves. I meant we know there's coyotes. Oh, okay. And and, uh, <laughs> and and in some areas there are wolves and bobcats and things like that. But they're so hard to see. And I know they're few and far between. But right. it, it's not common that you're going to come across them. Or not that common. You know, there's even red foxes all over the place. Oh, but yeah. You don't see them as often as they're actually around. No, uh, but. I'll so remember. I would have to imagine hunting down coyotes, you would have to have a pretty good, maybe you could even set up a, a scent station, <laughs> but I don't know how ethical that would be yeah. uh, hunting wise. Unless... Well, as far as I can tell, most states, their laws regarding coyote hunting are pretty lax. It's mm. almost like whoever you want to kill a coyote, go for it. And I know here in New York state, there's no limit during the coyote season, which is oh. most of the year. Okay. You can take as many coyotes as you want, but... I think most of these state laws, they're taking into account one, they know there's a lot of people out there that they want to kill coyotes and they're hunters and they're paying into conservation funds. Yeah. But also they, they know that the hunters are going to have a very limited impact over the long term hmm. because it is extremely difficult to try and reduce coyote populations through hunting because they can rebound so quickly. I'm wondering if you came across this, because uh, we're talking about hunting now uh, and things like that. And I get that deer and other ungulates that people hunt and coyotes are very different things in terms of their impact on the environment. Right. But do you know if there's a different prey response from humans hunting coyotes versus something like a wolf hunting yeah, a I coyote? Because uh, you've heard with deer, there's two different types of responses that like maybe a wolf would have on a population of deer versus sure. what people have on a population oh, of yeah, deer. Definitely. I, I, from my understanding, it has something to do with the, the way they group together or avoid certain yeah, it's areas the, when wolves are The ecology are of fear. Okay. So yeah, and I mean, that's because wolves as predators, as top predators, yeah. they're on the job 24 hours a day. Right. Whereas humans, 
it's so sporadic. And, yeah. and we don't have, there's not one area that a human's going to be around necessarily more, especially if you're a hunter yeah. than others. You might be up in a tree somewhere. I don't right. know. Yeah. Now the, the one other study that I didn't put in my notes, but I feel like I got to mention, I just remembered it. Do you know what helminths are? Helminths? Yeah. No. So these are, these are like parasites, like tapeworms. Oh, okay. And there's actually a couple Disgusting. studies that, that looked at how in normal coyote populations, these tapeworms are pretty common mm -hmm. and they help limit the coyote population. Hmm. And when you start removing the coyotes, there's fewer of these parasites. And that could also be a contributing factor that allows the populations to rebound so quickly because hmm. there's fewer of these parasites within the populations. Weird. Which okay. to me just goes to show you how complex this is. I mean, because that's definitely a factor that you think of, like disease and parasites and things like that, if a population gets too large, right? Yeah. It's just a natural response, more like a mathematical thing. Than I, right. Or I shouldn't just say math, it's it's a biological thing but there's, and a mathematical yeah. thing all combined into one. Now, yeah. you said that it was false that you can control coyote populations by hunting. I mean, I said false, but based on what you said, it's possible. I just think it would definitely takes a lot of effort. It can be done over the short term or it needs to be done like almost constantly. Hmm. So it's, it's extremely difficult to do it. Yeah. When, when is coyote hunting season? I, I think it's March through October. Okay. Which, what? Yeah. That's huge. Isn't it huge? Yeah. So I can't remember. Here in New York State. Yeah. I can't remember. It's either March through October or October through March. Well, I think it's March through October. <laughs> Still. <laughs> we'll put that in the episode notes. Right. All right. So the next question is, we should be hunting coyotes because they're killing too many deer. You said false, right? Yeah, I didn't think so. All right, well, you mentioned, and I was impressed by this, the mesopredator, right? Mm -hmm. What is that? What Obviously, is... it's a type of predator, but it's not the kind of predator that can take down larger game. Well, meso means middle, Yeah. right? Mesoamerica, middle America. And I'm sure I haven't studied trophic cascades in a long time, <laughs> so I haven't really thought about, uh, you know, apex predators and right. mesopredators and, and things like that in a long time. So uh, I've, I've been at the microscopic level, guys. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> I think it's an important distinction to make because there's a lot of articles out there, again, misinformation on the internet, that refer to coyotes as top predators. And I mean, technically, in terms of wildlife, they are our top predator right now, but that mm -hmm. is not the same thing as an apex predator right. that a wolf would be or a grizzly bear would be. Yeah. They don't function the same way. Now, I'm sure you've read the book, where the Wild Things Were yeah. by William Stolzenberg. Mm -hmm. um, if you haven't read that book, folks, and you're interested in apex predators and their impacts on ecology, it's amazing. And it's not just a science book. It's just a really fun book that yeah. goes through the lives of all these different scientists that have kind of picked up one right after the next. And right. they've run these different experiments with certain environments that would have apex predators and they would do these manipulations and see how how things would change usually i mean sometimes they're island studies because that's right. pretty easily controlled other times i think one of the scientists was just removing urchins off of rocks on a beach or something yeah, that's and, one of the the yeah. og predator studies yeah, yeah. And I, I can't remember the author's name but that was a really big name so that book talks about how mesopredators aren't true apex predators because those top predators they do three things they reduce herbivore overabundance, so things like deer. They prevent mesopredator release, so middle predators like raccoons, foxes, coyotes. When you have a top predator, it holds those populations in check. Yeah. Those middle predators, once their populations boom, they're going to have negative impacts on biodiversity because they're going to be going after birds, 
and other things mm-hmm. that wolves, top predators, would not go after. Yeah. And those first two things they do, reduce herbivore overabundance and prevent mesopredator release, they kind of feed into the third thing because the third thing that top predators do is maintain biological diversity. Yeah. That's why here in the East, it is really difficult for us to have ecosystems that are truly functioning. Um, I don't. I don't want to say in a natural way. A sustainable way. In maybe? a sustainable way, or as diverse as they could be. Sure. Because they have that key point missing, that top predator. Are we going to talk about Yellowstone at all? <laughs> well, I mean, we're kind of dancing around it. So that was such a big example where they reintroduced the wolves and then the herbivores, uh, their numbers kind of went down a little bit, or they were just avoiding certain areas like riverine, you know, type of uh, spots. So you saw a lot of regrowth near those rivers, helped with soil erosion, things right. like that. Kind of the whole ecosystem exploded again. But then I thought I heard a few years later that maybe that study was a little bit blown out of proportion. Maybe the gains weren't as good right. as, as we had thought, but, but so, I didn't really look into it personally. I looked into it because, okay. you know, I taught about this a lot in my wilderness class because obviously for something to be a biological wilderness, to be ecologically whole is the term we would have used a lot. Mm-hmm. It has to have a top predator. Mm-hmm. So yes, there were some studies that came out that questioned, you know, did the reintroduction of wolves have the massive ecological impact all these trophic co- cascades that were reported in the press i said a riverine area i think i, I meant riparian you did uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think i combined both those words together and it was i didn't want to correct yeah you. <laughs> it, uh. <laughs> we knew what you meant okay right. okay so now they know that i caught myself though <laughs> i've redeemed myself on the podcast unequivocally you have so okay good job steve thank you <laughs> so what i would say is that the bulk of the literature still supports that the reintroduction of wolves was extremely beneficial and did vastly increase biological diversity in many areas of Yellowstone, maybe mm-hmm. not all. Right. And that's what some of those counter studies did look at. But remember, science is about consensus, right? Right. And I, I think that's something that you would have to expect anyway. So when I first heard those results from the reintroduction, I didn't immediately think, oh my God, it's all gone back to normal because I don't think you can go from, wow, look at this biodiversity to let's put biodiversity on a break for a while, however many decades it was, and then hope that it goes right back to what it was before uh, after the reintroduction. You you have to expect that it's a dynamic landscape. Things aren't always gonna be the same. You could even lose species in one area maybe they would not come back to that area for a long time or maybe not at all so and i think that's how some of the the misreporting happened is that like oh yellowstone is a completely whole ecosystem again and that was not a lot of the initial researchers yeah a lot of their excitement was in their their shock was about just how quickly some changes did happen yeah and, and i do have to say all changes but. I, I don't even want to i don't even want to say oh it's the fake news media or anything like that that got it wrong because i think a lot of times a title might give that idea but when you actually read the article they usually don't say that in the article but usually a title has to be clickworthy yeah, and but that, there's a, I i'm think not there's saying a that every that article's good but yeah i prefer like a twitter story uh then uh, this will take you 10 minutes to read article or whatever <laughs> I, I don't i don't always have the time for that so yeah but i think you have more patience than most people and a lot of people might just read the title you know but i will say when i read a title i immediately imagine a scenario where it's not as extreme as what they're saying <laughs> and I, I just i'm like that's as good as reading the article i'm out of here <laughs> but i think that's because you're a critical thinker right? <laughs> maybe or maybe i'm a lazy thinker <laughs> So in terms of are the coyotes, how much are they impacting deer? Just take about what I said about them being mesopredators. 
that right there says, you know, are they going to have as big of an impact as a true top predator would? No. So I want to kind of set that question aside for a second, though, because I think it's important to talk about right now. A lot of articles talking about the coyotes here in the east, they say with almost certainly, with almost certainty that... We knew what you meant. <laughs> that, that the eastern coyotes are so successful because they're bigger and they say they have coyote smarts with wolf brawn. And I, oh boy. <laughs> I saw something to that effect in so many articles. Yeah, yeah. That basically saying because of their wolf genes, they can now take down larger prey and they can colonize the east. Hmm. Basically, hybridization with wolves permitted eastern coyotes to rapidly colonize all areas east of the Mississippi. <laughs> but we got to hold on because all we can really say is that it appears that these eastern coyotes, they have a selective advantage over western coyotes and wolves because those animals don't live where the eastern coyote is, <laughs> where it's ubiquitous, we should say. But the idea that the eastern coyote's success is because of hybridization that's merely a hypothesis. R right. Right? An equally valid hypothesis would be to say that coyotes, whether they bred with eastern wolves or not, would have been successful because of us wiping out wolves in the east. So the larger size of the eastern coyote could be irrelevant to the coyote's success. Rather, and you don't like that word success. So how about we say... The larger size could be irrelevant to the coyote's spread. That's a word that I like more because success, that's not a scientific question. Sure. You have to really carefully define what you mean by success. So so it could be irrelevant to their spread. So if, if a range expansion is success, then yeah. yeah. That, okay, we're going to define it <laughs> that way. But it could be, now you messed me up. So <laughs> their larger size could be irrelevant to their spread rather than the driving force behind it. Okay. So even if they hadn't met with those eastern wolves up in Canada and hybridized with them, they still may have been successful and spread across the mm -hmm. East. So we know that they hybridized and we know that their populations expanded, but we don't know if they hybridized because they were already expanding or they spread because they hybridized. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could see you, you can't necessarily give an answer to that question. Yeah. yeah. So let's get into it. What about the Eastern coyotes impact on game, especially deer? Mm -hmm. We already mentioned there's many in the hunting community that they have long-standing concerns about coyotes and, and really other predators, their impacts on populations of game. Now remember, they're a mid-sized predator, so they're opportunists. And they hunt not just for large prey, but for small prey. They scavenge a lot of dead animals. And remember, they even eat fruits and, and vegetables, right? Hmm. Yeah. Most studies do show that on average, their diet consists mostly of small to mid-sized mammals. So about 60%. Okay. And remember, their diet changes seasonally with geography. There was a five-year five study here in New York that showed deer fawns were an important food source in the spring and early summer. Hmm. And then in winters with deep snow, these groups of coyotes, if you want to call them packs, they were capable of taking down the occasional adult deer. Hmm. But usually it was deer that had already been injured, uh, yeah. like, typically by cars. I think taking okay. down a deer is dangerous. I wouldn't <laughs> right. want to do it with my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but again, Even, I'm not as equipped. We're, we're not carnivores. I guess they're not either, but they have better weapons than us oh, in that regard. Getting kicked? Come on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. So then there was another study. This is in 2008 and nine, And this is from um, the ESF, the College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Big mm -hmm. environmental school here in New York. Yeah, they're okay. <laughs> they examined animal carcasses that were visited by radio-collared coyotes. 
So they'd use the collars to determine where the carcasses were. They'd go and examine the carcasses. During the winter, out of all the deer carcasses they found, only 8% had been killed conclusively by coyotes. Okay. The ones that were killed by coyotes had severe pre-existing injuries. Hmm. And they would have most likely died anyway in the absence of coyote predation. Hmm. The remaining 92% of deer carcasses were scavenged by coyotes after the deer had already been killed. What's attacking a deer? Is it like competition between other deer? <clears throat> no, no, these were killed by ve- vehicles. Oh, vehicles. vehicles. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay. The okay. most dangerous weapon we have. Because yeah. <laughs> this was during the winter. I mean, I'm just thinking all year long, <laughs> vehicles are real dangerous. So now during the summer of that study, about half the carcasses they found, 55%, were fawns. Mm. So they do take a good number of fawns. Yeah. 24% of the carcasses were woodchucks, 18% were turkeys, and 4% were goose and cottontail rabbits. Hmm. Not all of the radio collared coyotes killed fawns. So only some of the population killed fawns. And the kill rates varied widely among individual coyotes. Hmm. Fawns up to about 20 days old seemed to be vulnerable to coyote predation. But then after that, after about mid-June or so, predation of fawns dropped. So once hmm. fawns were really able to move, um, they weren't able, the coyotes weren't able to get them as often. That's so interesting that only some of them did it. But like, yeah, you know, I, they have to <laughs> discover it on accident. You can eat these? Oh my God. <laughs> Uh, so there was another stu- uh, study just last year, 2019. Get this. They looked at deer populations trends from 1981 to 2014. Mm-hmm. So it's a long time, 24 years. Sure, wow. In, sorry, longest, 20, 23 years. Yeah, 23 years. It's <laughs> the longest uh, study you've talked about so far. Wait a minute. No, 33 years. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> right? We're, we're not mathematicians, <laughs> No, guys. no. Yeah. They looked at 384 counties in six states in the eastern U.S. And what they found... Overall, deer populations in all of those states experienced positive growth following coyote arrival. Okay? (laughs) Interesting. They were quick to point out the populations didn't increase because of coyotes. Okay? (laughs) (laughs) I like that they pointed that out. Right. But just the results indicate that coyotes are not controlling deer populations. Okay. Now, remember, that last study I talked about, that was a large-scale study. Mm -hmm. So local conditions could be different. You know, if you have a large coyote pack in a certain area, it could have a different impact on deer. So along with that, I found one study from 2014. This was in the Journal of Wildlife Management. And that did say, look, coyote predation, it's not significant enough to cause deer populations to decline. But in areas where there are high levels of coyote predation on deer, you can counter that just by reducing doe harvests. Just by making sure there's more female deer out there, you can offset those areas where the coyotes seem to have a very strong taste for deer. Hmm. So they're basically saying, look, overall, coyotes are having minimal impact on deer populations. Right. But even if they are, just don't kill so many does. Sure. That's going to take care of it. So I'm going to end with this. Even though coyotes do have small game and some deer being part of their diet, they don't appear to, to be reducing game numbers here in the east. Now, the Pennsylvania Gaming Commission. Aren't they, like, famous for being really... Pro-hunting. Yeah, pro-hunting. Yes. They're, like, the best in the country, I think. Yeah, so in 2016, they came out with a statement that said, predators don't compete with our hunters for game. Wow, good on them. To pretend that predator control can return small game hunting to the state is a false prophecy. It's like, whoa, yeah. 
And they said, wildlife studies have shown time and again that habitat protection is the number one most important contributing factor in promoting healthy small game numbers. Yeah. And then down in North Carolina, their Wildlife Resources Commission, again, which is typically pro-hunting, stated most coyote diet studies document low to no prevalence of wild turkey or other game birds in diets. In predation on adult deer, while it has been documented, it is uncommon and hunter harvest remains the primary source of adult deer mortality. Hmm. So to answer that question, do we need to be killing more coyotes because they're impacting the deer population? No. Doesn't seem it's like false. it. false. No. So that's it. Now, that last question I asked you about are coyotes killing livestock, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to get into that in the next episode. Oh! <laughs> okay. So I decided to save that one because I knew this, this would take a while. So we're going to look at that, and we're going to also look at the debate about whether the eastern coyote is its own species or not. Interesting. Yeah, right. I think I'm excited. Okay. All right, guys. So first, we want to thank our new iTunes reviewers. First, we had Claire Plants Lots, Rust Belt 8, Sharon Outside, and Rodney Gast. So I do want to say that Sharon Outside, she gave us a five-star review, but she did say that um, she wishes we could get rid of the 12-year-old boy humor. No, did, did we not do enough of that this time? <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about it. So <laughs> Something will happen before the end of the episode. <laughs> so I guess we'll apologize for the 12-year-old boy humor, but that's kind of who we are. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's we, kind of, we never grew up. Kind yeah. of hard to avoid, but yeah. we appreciate the reviews. And I also, I did check Stitcher, which I haven't checked in a long time. So yeah. I want to thank CP and OP for their review. And then I also, I want to thank those people that mentioned us on Twitter recently, the Casual Birder podcast. Check that podcast out. Jennifer, who went out looking for a woodcock because of our episode. Nice. Yeah. And then Hannah and Eric go birding, their podcast. So check out their podcast as well. Uh, unless it's better than ours. <laughs> no, no, no. There's always there's always room for more. So. No, no. People working from home, they have plenty of time to listen to podcasts. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So we also want to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. And we usually just thank our top patrons. But this time we're going to do something special. We're going to thank our whole entire patron list. Because, folks, we can't thank you enough for sticking it out, even though we haven't been releasing episodes reliably every month. Just know that we are working on them. We're not going to charge you in a month that we don't release an episode, but we just really appreciate it. It means the world to us that you are sticking with us and we promise to keep releasing episodes. So Steve, you want to do the honors? Yes. So thank you, Lee, Jennifer, Sean, Eliza, Eugenia, Julie, Monica, Guy, Dave, Roger, May, Kimberly, Crow's Feet, or Crow's Nest. <laughs> Willie of Crow's here, we're so sorry. Sarah, Dan, Sean, Vicky, Trot24, John, Gavin, Pollywog, we named the dog Indy, Esther, Bruce, Rob, Goose, Jessica, Jeff, Diane, Rachel, Ken, Daniel, Orange Julian, Rich, and Alyssa, and the Hebranks. That's right. Which the Hebranks must be new. Yes. And, and I know Alyssa did up her patronage, so thank you so yes. much, Alyssa. So special thanks to those that just joined us or those that upped their donation. We appreciate it a lot. Yeah, thank yeah. you guys so much. And folks, make sure to check us out on Facebook, on Twitter, all our social media feeds. Uh, I've been trying to do my best to put out some posts on a regular basis. So I've been impressed. Yeah. Both on, uh, you've been doing Instagram and Twitter. That's right. I've been working yeah. hard. And yeah. I've been twiddling my thumbs. <laughs> You're free to jump in anytime, Steve. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, folks. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye.